0: You know what, Rich? I've basically spent like the last however long it is we've been communicating, making sure that I knew how to pronounce your name properly, and then now like, I feel like I'm just going to absolutely flap it if I even try and say it.
1: <laughs> Mate, all I would all I would say is just just go for it. The um hesitation is your enemy when it comes to my name. Yeah, also, I... it's quite it, it's quite phonetic as well. Yeah. Uh I mean, so Vidusha Hunter Hunteraja, obviously I can say it.
0: If you say it, then um... no wonder it won't be struggling. One of the episodes, Pete said it all the way through. And I feel like he just flew into it with confidence. And I think that's the way you've got to go.
1: Yeah, I mean that's how Pete lives his life anyway. So yeah, that's uh, yeah, good to take a cue from him,
0: yeah. <laughs> um so we'll see what I get we'll get with it.
1: My name is Vidusha and Hunter Raja. Welcome to Man Marking, where we're asking, where's the talking, lads?
0: You only get out the game what you put into it, Mm
2: Shirley. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Yeah, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that.
0: Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Vithushin Hantharaja.
1: Yeah, uh, so um, my name is Vidushin Hantharaja. Um, everyone else calls me Vish, and I'm a sport, the sports feature writer for the Independent. Um, yeah, I think that's basically about it. The long and short of it, really. Um, I've kind of been working in journalism. Since about 2011, um, and kind of mainly as a freelancer, and then I took this job at The Independent back in uh, October last year. Yeah, so coming up to um, one year in the gig, and um, yeah, loving it so far, beyond uh, not being able to go anywhere for the last three or four months.
0: Joining me in the virtual studio, I've got Ryan, I've got Ant, the two fellas, we're back again, like the renegade master. I feel like I've said that before.
2: I think you yeah. have,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah? Well, I'll say it again. Yeah. Once again like the renegade master. How are we, fellas? Ants, you looking uh, perky? Uh,
2: yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Uh I'm awake, which is great.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh yeah, no, I'm I'm flying. Fresh flying. as paint. Fresh as paint.
0: Lovely. Lovely to hear, mate. And speaking of paint, here's the uh, Bob the Builder himself. It's Ryan right Pulford. How are we, mate? Yeah.
3: I'm good, mate. Got a bit of paint on my hand there, actually.
0: So, yeah. Yeah, I like that. I feel like if you do a bit of painting, you have to leave a bit on your hands, not clean it all off so that people know that you've been doing some painting. Yeah. Oh,
3: go, go. Oh, I've left it on, have I?
0: Well, you know, I mean, if you want to see pictures, I've got some. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Are we both okay, fellas? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. How Fantastic! You? Yeah, you know, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. Not bad at all. Just <laughs> keep just it on, keep it, it on. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, before we end up doing more impressions, which we could do, to be fair, I think that would be an enjoyable way for for us to spend an hour with the uh, with the listeners. Would be, it wouldn't, for, be
2: it wouldn't be enjoyable for them,
0: and it wouldn't be an hour either. We'd run out after about six <laughs> minutes. Yeah. Once Ryan had done Sean Dych and Tyson Fury, we'd um we'd struggle, I think, at that point. Um before we get started, uh just addressing you lovely listeners out there. We've been uh, making episodes now for the best part of a year. Um, and there's there's many many for you to enjoy and and, and you know you have been joining, you've been letting us know on on, on the socials. Um, but if you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed any of the ones in the past, if you could jump jump onto Apple Podcasts, give us a five star review and a comment, that would be extremely helpful in helping us to grow the podcast and reach new listeners. Okay, so on with today's episode. The weekend we've just had has just been the, the fourth round of the FA Cup. So what I want from you two chaps is, I want your favourite FA Cup memory, but I want your favourite non-tramier FA Cup memory. We've obviously got a long and storied history in the uh, in the greatest cup competition in the world. So I want your non tramier FA Cup memories. And Ryan, I'm going to come to you first. Yeah, um, I don't think I've
3: ever given you a single answer when you've asked me a question. I'm going to do the same again. Um, so when you asked it, the first thing that stuck out was Alan Pardew's dance. Oh yeah, line yeah. That lasted three minutes before one matter broke his heart. <laughs> um, but in terms the, of an I don't game, think.
0: I think you should clarify. I don't think the dance lasted three minutes. That'd be quite intense. And it was,
3: it was so obviously pre-empted. Like, I know. Practised it and gone. If we take the lead, I'm going to do this little like shuffle.
0: You reckon uh, he did it the night before, nude to like his partner? And he's like, hey, <laughs> what do you think of this? <laughs>
3: Probably. Um and in terms of a game, one that always stuck out with me, I think because I was quite young at the time was remember when Wickham beat Leicester.
0: Oh uh, yeah, Roy Yeah. So,
3: yeah. Uh, and Warri Sanchez was in the in the
2: locker room. Sh- he was in the locker room, he
3: was in the locker room. He's uh, been
0: sent off, hadn't he?
2: Yeah. yeah, he had that big long coat on. I'm big sure, green coat. I'm sure yeah, he was yeah. soaked. Like, yeah, he was. He was drenched. You see all the patches <laughs> on the coat of the rain. Like, and he oh. was
0: sat in like a tiny little room with like the smallest telly, I like know. with like an aerial, like someone trying to get the signal with an aerial and stuff. It was like so yeah. mad. Yeah, that was that that was brilliant. Yeah,
3: fiends,
0: wasn't it? Yeah, class classic. Uh, and favorite non-Stranmere FA Cup memory?
2: So I've got a few. Um, because <laughs> it's quite hard to narrow, narrow them down. Yeah, really. every
0: time you th- every time you think of one, you think, oh yeah, but what about that I one?
2: Know. yeah, Ray Parler's goal against Chelsea was lovely. Oh, yeah, it was that gorgeous. Was, you know, a little bend it outside and bring it back into the top corner. That was that was superb. I, because we played Barnsley the other day in the cup, I was reminded of their cup run in '08, uh, I think it was, and like them going to Liverpool and and, and winning. And you're looking at that team and going, nah, Liverpool were probably with the kids out. There was like Javi Alonso in midfield, and Brian Howard ran the show.
0: <laughs> was that like, um Coyote O'Djai up front for them? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. O'Djai up front against Petacek. You know, with John Terry there, and you're like, I seen that. John We've
0: John had, was part yeah, of that team, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, we had O'Djai at Tramier, mm. And He was never ever that good. Like <laughs> he done yeah. by then. He was done. He yeah. And which is fair enough because he was like thirty odd when we signed him. But there so many, like, you know, I remember uh, Cardiff in that same year. I think it was Kevin McNaughton. He had grey hair since he was like fourteen. He looked about. 60. <laughs>
0: yeah, Goal he right looked. He looked back. like someone had put a filter oh, on his life, like a black and white filter on his. Yeah. On his it was, like, it was grey scale.
2: It was a, a good right back, but they played Hereford, which was at the time. I mean, we went to Hereford a couple of times, and it was a horrible place to go. It was. It was, <laughs> it was, of, it was, it was like that yeah. ground was just nasty, like a nasty ground to go to. It, it was like, like it was like
0: you'd gone to the Soviet Union in like oh, the yeah. like the mid sixties.
2: But it was like. It was one of them proper old throwbacks where the, the away end and home end are split by like cages, yeah. and it was like, I think he picks the ball. He scores an absolute scream. He picks the ball up on the right hand side and just blasts it in. The, <laughs> I think it's a top corner. And you're like, that was that's unbelievable, and that that like pretty much carried on throughout the 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 run. And obviously, it was when Adam Ramsey be, was was getting all that those plaudits as well when he was. Yeah. Twelve, or whatever he was when he was playing for Cardiff. So there's, there's a there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of good ones. Do
0: you reckon Aaron Ramsey and um and and old Kev were in the were in the same uh, in the same class. Aaron Ramsey getting loads of plaudits for for his performances for Cardiff, and Kev just there with his grey hair.
2: It's just mad like McNaughton was such, he was such a like he was good, like you just you always went, Oh yeah, he solid him. And then watch him score this goal, I was like, Oh my god.
0: Yeah, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. That shouldn't it's,
2: happen. Ricardo at the time were like quite known for playing like good football. I think they had like Kumas around the same time, possibly McPhail. Had, McPhail. Yeah. Had, playing them they, they had Chopra and and they've been in the playoffs quite a lot. Um so for them to get to the to the final was 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 ridiculous. And in that final the wanku celebration is awful when he scores that goal <laughs> absolutely it looks like a glitch on fifa it's shit, absolutely <laughs> shit.
0: <laughs>
2: proper ruins the moment
0: i um, i went for uh wiggins winning the fa cup against yeah, city uh so. the ben watson i was actually at that game so i was um we were in in the wigan end and it was do you know what it was it was uh, it was it was amazing to see just because it was Wigan winning the FA Cup. So that was that was that was just amazing of itself. But there was just there was just people just crying all over the gaff who just couldn't believe what was happening. Just like taking off their rugby tops and putting football ones on and they just couldn't believe what was going on <laughs> for Wigan. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Right. So moving on, moving on to, to Vish, uh on today's episode, Vish of uh of the the Independent and also of the football ramble. First of all then, Ant, it's probably a bit of an obvious question, but why did we want to get Vish on the show? Uh,
2: because he's been in my ears since the summer. Yeah. Um, and he's a really funny guy, really nice guy, he comes across really well. Um, and obviously he's a very intelligent guy as well, obviously with, with the job that he does. Um, you know, and he's, he, he covers a wide range of sports. Um, I think for me, I like when he covers cricket.
0: but Yeah, and I'm weirdly not as big a fan of that part of him. <laughs>
2: But his is writing as well and he, he's not afraid to tackle these big, big stories as well. Obviously in the summer we've had, we've had plenty regarding race and, and, and football as a whole as well. Um, you know, with you know, it's seemingly trying to eat itself with in terms of money and, and becoming a little bit of a monster. Um I say a little bit, it's probably huge. Um, it needs King needs King Kong to come and take it on. Like, if anyone's <laughs> wondering what that is, I think there's a Godzilla versus Kong film coming out. Which is I, there really?
0: Yeah, that Look, sounds amazing.
2: amazing. <laughs> just said, put but, it on pay per view. <laughs> Fourteen ninety
3: five. <1495.
0: laughs> but yeah, that's
2: that's the reason we want to speak to Vish because he was, you know, he is he's just a nice guy, and we want to get get to know what it's like to to be him and and what he does in his jobs and. And how he's settling into the football Ramble come is is one of the main questions that we ask, which is, you know, really good because the the Ramble went from four guys to having a bit of a change to to bringing in these over uh, yeah, there's eight uh, of them now, isn't yeah, Eight Over people and you and you are getting over characters in the show really, which is great.
0: Yeah, and they've changed the dynamics of it, and to change a show that's been so successful for so long and remains fresh, even though it was the same format that they'd always used. And then to make that decision to change it up was probably one that he didn't go into lightly. It was a very brave decision, and we do discuss that with Vish, that the, the yeah, change of dynamics.
2: I think for for me, like it was something I never thought I, I'd need, but like I absolutely want it more and more now. Like it's yeah. great, it's absolutely brilliant.
0: Absolutely, and every episode we have a theme. Ryan, do you want to tell our listeners what this week's theme is?
3: Yeah, this week's theme is understanding grief, tackling racism, and signing for the football ramble
0: fantastic and if you've got your own theme anything that you've picked up during Vish's interview then do drop us a line so we can we can discuss it the uh, email address is manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com and our twitter is at marking underscore man so we're now going to go to Vish's interview and we will see you on the other side you're listening to man manmarking <laughs> Um, and the podcast itself is, you know, we talk about uh, football and men and, uh, and men's mental health. And, and aside from me pestering you for about a year, how um, why, why did you agree to, to come on the podcast?
1: Well, I mean, you say you were pestering me for about for about a year. You're certainly doing it the right way. You're very complimentary about my work, and um, yeah, it just seemed like a good egg to be fair. Um, yeah, you know, I'd seen. I think you'd have You've got. You've had Miguel Delaney, my co-worker on this before, and you know, I, I'd say pretty much yes to anything to be honest. So um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but but I suppose with this with this particular podcast, I, I think mental health is something that I think I myself I'm, I'm learning about you know every single day i suppose um i've had you know friends and family affected by it and to be honest you it's funny isn't it i suppose the more information that comes out about about that particular topic the more you tend to reflect on how you were in certain situations and you know without without you know taking it the extra step and, and self-diagnosing yourself i think there are some times when i realise that even in moments where well, I suppose, especially in the moments where I felt that I didn't want to ask for help for, for whatever issue, for whatever I was dealing with. I think it's, um, I think that now there's a bit more aware, or awareness about it that it's, I suppose, less taboo, for want of a better phrase. So, um, so yeah, I, I suppose, given the topics that you cover on this podcast, I thought it'd be, you know, you're, you, you, uh, you sold it to me as um, you'd love to have me on. But I think this is also something that I'd like to be a part of as well.
0: So you, you were you were talking about um your role as a, as a journalist was that something that you always wanted to do was that kind of a, a bit of a dream from a, a young age
1: Um it was to an extent um I never really thought of it as a viable career but I was always into I think I, think I was always into sports broadcasting um I remember uh, so I remember one uh, my dad had a had a camcorder and I remember one day I filmed myself reading the news um, from basically based on the news that had just just happened that, you know, maybe an hour before. And then I got my dad and mum to sit through it the next day, even though they obviously helped me record it and this, that and the other. And beyond annoying them, I think looking back on it, I was, I've always been fascinated with that side of it, specifically commentary as well. I've always adored um, football commentary and commentators. Um, and I suppose just the... You know, we're all as football fans, we're all wanna be football players, aren't we? we all the reason we love the game so much is because we wanna be a part of it and the, you know, the best way to be a part of it is to be a footballer. Um and you know, saving that is to be as close to it as possible. And I, I think I saw, when I was young when I was young, I saw football commentary as my way of not my way of doing it, but certainly something that I would fantasize about um, being a part of. And then I kind of let it slide really until I was at university because i did um I did chemical engineering at uni up in Edinburgh, and it was only my first year of that where I realized I, I think i had had quite a cosseted education process. I think in my head it was always like like right, school, uni, you know degree job, life, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. um and i f- and I kind of I broke out of that probably when I was about fourteen. But all the while felt like the, you know, the future years of my life were on quite a narrow path. And it was only really my first year of uni where I realised actually it doesn't have to be so vocational. And also I can, you know, use that grounding of, you know, like decent A-levels to actually explore what I really wanted to do. So I started writing for the student paper and really really loved it and and it was always sport for me i was always interested in sports writing from then on and yeah kind of got out of uni in 2009 i think yeah um and then basically just applied for internships work experiences here and there Uh, my first bit of work experience was at 442 for a couple of weeks which was an absolute godsend because the people there are amazing and were really generous with their time and and the opportunity as well. So they got me to write loads of different things. And, you know, because I, I, I didn't do a uni degree, I think maybe I was helped a little bit because I wasn't kind of, um, I suppose, working with a bit of a narrow focus. They just let me do anything and everything and I kind of learned on the job. And that that was that's proved invaluable to me because I don't think, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I have particularly great structure to anything I do, but um, I suppose beyond what my editor tells me. And I think that probably helped little things that like get noticed and also um, I suppose allow, be allowed to indulge my imagination and stuff like that. So that's kind of, I, I've realized I've waffled all, my, all the way through that, but that's kind of basically how I got into it by waffling.
0: Do you know, do you know what, Bish, what, what I find quite interesting? It, you're someone that I, I find that when you, um, when whenever you're kind of talking about, you know whether it's listening to you on, say, like the ramble or, or, or reading one of your pieces that you've written, you often kind of talk about sport as part of like the kind of bigger structure of sort of societal things that are going on, and you feel quite aware of those kind of nuances. Which I suppose it's then interesting that you chose sport as your as the thing that you wanted to write about. I mean, I, I would suspect, as you say, like because you're a football fan, you're a sport fan, so it makes sense, but. Did you kind of see a way of using your love of sport and the way that sport sort of mirrors other issues in the world as like a good sort of balancing act between the two? Um, I don't
1: know if I... No, I I would say no, uh, that it didn't kind of dictate how I've approached sport. But I think what... You know, I think kind of the experiences of my parents and some people around me, uh, very early on made me aware of that the, there's always a bigger picture basically and I think with sport in particular it is you know it is used by so many people as a release and yeah, you know I suppose you only need to see what's happened over the last couple of months with regards to you know clubs going to the wall because of the pandemic um, you know people losing their jobs and things like that to realise that you know that that's always been there that's always been quite a big part of football that's always been quite a big part of sport the people around it and the society around it um and I think it's always in imp- it's weird to say this because the beauty the beauty of sport is it takes you to a different place. But I do think it's always important to remember the real world factors that go into every little thing. Um so yeah, I suppose to, to answer your question outright, I supposed to answer it correctly. <laughs> um it's not it, it's not something I ever went into this job to you know to ensure that I was across I didn't go into it thinking right I need to make sure that everything whatever whenever I write about something I'm always looking at the bigger picture but I just find maybe even getting older as well that you're more aware of that and it, it's your duty you, you know you have a you've got a platform to do things and it's your duty to to I suppose show people the whole picture rather than just the the lovey-dovey bits I suppose
0: yeah of course. And does does do you think your job has kind of changed your relationship with with sport?
1: See, this is the question I get asked a lot by my mates because they're like, oh, you know, it must feel like, you know, it must feel like, um, you know, a busman's holiday when you go and watch a game, whether it's football or cricket or anything else, um, or just watch it at home on the TV. But to be honest, like the the reason I wanted to do this primarily is because it's is the best job in the world. You get paid to you know, watch sport and write about sport and watch people do amazing things and, and watch kind of, you know, people push themselves to the mental and physical limits. Um, and so, you know what, I think it's probably made me appreciate it a bit more, actually. I think it's made me, because, because you know, doing this job, you see a lot of the stuff that, well, certainly I've, I've seen a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have seen had I not been in it. You know, you see the sacrifice people make. Um, you know, I cover cricket for an example. For example, and you know, when you when you cover cricket, you get an idea of how fickle the game is, and how how rare it is to get to any to the professional level, let alone international level, let alone test level, and then to be success when you get there. So, I, I think it's kind of given me a greater appreciation of of the of the smaller things really within sport, and and that's it. Probably improved. I reckon it's probably. You know, I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those people who's who's into into slating players for their ability and stuff like that. But maybe I would watch a Sunday League game and be like, "Oh, he's a bit shit." (laughs) When I realise that, actually, no, mate, you're you're four you're you know four levels away from the professional setup there are thousands of people who want to be in your position maybe you know hundreds of thousands of people that want to be in your position and you're there and you're holding it down so good for you I think that's it, it probably made me less of a tool to be honest
0: I suppose then like for 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 someone like yourself and for um journalists sort of across the board in sport and and particularly in football I would i i, I kind of think in the in the last sort of five or ten years or so the sort of um profile of of journalists in the game has kind of has risen to sort of being slightly different than what it used to be in terms of and it's probably got a lot to do with sort of social media and stuff. Um but from your perspective, Bish, what would you say are one of the sort of biggest misconceptions that people have about being a sports journalist or something that that goes into it that we wouldn't really think of um biggest
1: misconceptions well i i think i think one of the one of the big i wouldn't say this is the biggest one but i think one of the misconceptions about journalists is that you you know you shouldn't be a fan of a, of a team um and i suppose i can understand that in the sense that you need you need to be impartial and you need to you know if you're if you have an allegiance that impinges on your work then that is a problem but I don't think any journalist is actually like that. I think, you know, journalists will support different teams and, you know, and therefore might be privy to certain certain information that they wouldn't get elsewhere because, you know, they'll probably spend more time covering that club, for example, because often if you, if you grow up in the area, you support that local team, you work for a local organisation or, you know, you end up being sent there a bit more, then you're going to have a better relationship with that team. If that makes sense. Um, but I think most journalists, in in fact, all journalists, I'd like to think, are are impartial. And when it comes to defending them on Twitter, maybe then that kind of fan side of it comes into view a bit more. But I don't think any any journalist wishes ill on any particular club. No, no journalist has it out for your club or your players. You know, I think that's <laughs> that's something that gets put at a lot of people um, in terms of stuff behind the scenes that you don't see. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's fairly, uh, you know, journalists work really hard and they find it really hard to switch off. And I think the journalists that find it easy to switch off are probably, you know, I think it's important, it's imp- absolutely important to switch off, but I think those are the ones tend, it tend to be off the pace. But I think that's why there is a fear in the industry of, you know, everyone, everyone's got FOMO in this, in this industry, whether it's a story or an event or, you know, a match that you should be covering. Um, so, you know, they there is a, a lot of hard work and effort that goes into it. Don't get me wrong; it is <laughs> it's hard work. You take, you know, ten yep. times out of ten when it's offered to you. But, um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know. To, to be honest, like you know, Dan, what what do you reckon? What what um, I suppose what 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 would you? Is, is there anything that you think about journalists in particular? Because you've had a lot on here that you know it that you want. Not corrected, but, you know, is there anything in particular that um, that fascinates you about about the industry? Because it's pretty straightforward. We're pretty simple people, to be honest.
0: <laughs> Do you know, it, it was interesting you mentioned Nervish about, um, about you know, uh, no Janus has got it in for a team, or I often feel the same about there's a, there's, there's a guy that I've got on Twitter and he's, um, in fact, I've got one guy who's a Liverpool fan and I've got another guy who is a United fan. I, th- I cannot remember who it is. Oh, I can't remember who it is. One of the referees. Or, oh, no, I know, I know who it is. It's Martin Tyler. So, the Liverpool fan thinks that Martin Tyler loves Man United. And the Man United fan thinks that Martin Tyler loves Liverpool. And yeah. I think the same things about Martin Tyler when the other team's playing. It's honestly one of the weirdest things i've ever seen but their tweets are almost identical i feel like they don't know each other and i feel like introducing them to one another because i feel like they might get on but like, <laughs> like a weird sort of <laughs> being sort of martin tyler hatred based universe but it, it that that that's quite funny that you mentioned that one thing that i did i was going to ask vish was um we've obviously we've been doing the, the, these interviews for a, for about six months now and we're all kind of we you know we're 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 you know, we, we do this as like a hobby and we do this as, as, something sort of on top of obviously our day jobs and what have you. And so we're always learning all the times in terms of doing the interviews. Do you ever sit in front of somebody or be on the phone to someone and do an interview and just be, and, and is it, you know, you're just like, fuck, I can't believe I'm speaking to this person.
1: Oh mate, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All the time. Um, you get, um, You know, obviously you get used to it after a while and you know you're there for... Often, you know, the bigger the player, the rarer the opportunity. So you might be a bit more nervous about that. But like, oh my God, I'm speaking to this player. But also, shit, I need to make this count because I've only got 10 minutes and then he's doing everyone else and, you know, I need to ask what I need to ask and do it in a way that, you know, so that he's forthcoming, he or she's forthcoming with their answer. Um, But uh, yeah, no, I, I still have that, yeah. Because... I think one of the things that that I found really useful is having mates outside of the industry. Um, I, you know, I've got the same group of mates that I grew up with uh, from the age of thirteen, and they're really good for bringing me back down to earth because you know sometimes you can get—it's certainly a job that you can get caught up in—and things the most important, and you know every, everything needs to be done. You've got to get this piece out, you've got to do this research, and it's good for them to kind of take me to one side and take the piss out of me relentlessly but you know it's good every now and again um and i think uh you know you also feel off their enthusiasm as well so um you know i've got a mate who's a west ham fan who loves robert snodgrass and i interviewed snodgrass um you know last season and he was like tell me everything what's he like and i was like yeah he's really nice he's like yeah i knew he was really nice i knew he was really nice (laughs) um and he was really nice to be fair he's one of the best people to interview got a lot to say and um yeah, so so I think you still you still have that, don't you? Like, I, I think if I, <laughs> I think if I ever interviewed David Beckham, I might cry. I
0: was watching <laughs> Premier League years before that. It was the year when he scored the goal from the halfway line against Wimbledon. Just, I've never told <sighs> that. I've just, it's like the kind of, you know, when you when you find a material that's really nice to touch, you know, like a nice like, <laughs> it that's always like, like the visual equivalent of touching like a nice bit of carpet or something. Like it's just so nice. I really you just like, want to press
1: your face up against it. Yeah, yeah
0: I just want to like. It's like it's because it, I think it's because it's sunny and the pitch is all nicely caught. And he just kind of strokes it, and he and then he just walks off, kind of smiling, like he's like going, I I'd have lost me shit if I just got to go like <laughs> kind of like yay, <laughs> just absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. One thing, bitch, when you're kind of speaking to doing those interviews and and you know. I mean, one one thing that I found from doing these is that kind of thing of being like, when we're speaking, when we're speaking to people, trying to remember that you're doing it so you can get a good interview out it, as opposed to like being like, oh, I hope they like me. I hope, I hope they, you know, that they're interested in what I'm saying. Is that something that you've ever had any difficulty with, or does that just kind of go out the window straight away?
1: Um. Well, I think the, you know, being personable is very important because if you think about it from their point of view, it's it's actually very, very weird. Um, you know, be, you're basically being – there's an expectation on you as a professional athlete to, I suppose, divulge personal information to a stranger or someone you've met, you know, maybe a handful of times. And then within that, there's also – you know whether it's uh, whether you need to get out a message yourself as that as that athlete or you know there's something you don't want to talk about they're kind of always constantly on edge so i think it's it's really important to you know to i suppose to be as as comforting as possible in your world while also not using that as an excuse to not ask difficult questions because we'll get someone's back up i think there's a way of asking difficult questions um and it's something you you lead into and it's probably something that should be done with a bit of empathy, really, even if you don't really know what it's like to, you know, say get arrested, you know, on a night out in Greece or, you know, have your private life thrown all over the tabloids. I think, um, you know, being, I suppose being a human, being a person, really, that's the one of the most important things when you're ever in that situation. Um, and I think people, I think people, athletes, um, particularly footballers, respond to that because I think, you know, of all the of all the different sports stars in this country, I don't think anyone's had it worse than footballers, um, and even footballers who've come from you know footballers born in the two thousands, who wouldn't necessarily know or have been privy to that kind of. Um, I, I suppose that you know having having their private lives delved into and all this you know some, some more salacious stuff um i, I think they're taught grown up by their whether it's agents or marketeers to be really wary of their public image and public profile and and specifically be wary of journalists so i think in that regard yeah it's um it is very important to you know even if you even if you might not like the player or not like i i remember um uh, when I started at four four two, or rather in the first few months, I did an interview with Ashley Cole over the phone for like a performance type thing. Um, and uh, you know, uh, as a as a Manchester United fan, and um, you know, I suppose you know Ashley Cole's reputation, I was a bit like, oh god. i kind of wasn't looking forward to it because i was i I wonder if i could hide my um at the time you know i didn't much like him just from what i'd extrapolated really not from from any information or any real information um and he was good as gold like he, he couldn't have been nicer um really engaging really good with his time um really good with me even though you know he would have sussed pretty early on i was basically just a work experience kid um, giving him a call and um, yeah, so like I, I think that was that was quite a good interview to do early doors where I was like, oh god, he was really nice. He's really nice. What, a, what a lovely mm-hmm. bloke! I love Ashley Cole now. <laughs> do
0: you know what? This that's been like the nicest thing for us is like, I, I people often you get people don't do it and and, and often it's people who aren't really into sports or into football who'd be like, you know, they have the kind of judgments about what footballers are like, and we've we must have spoken to about. 20, 25 kind of former footballers, most of them, some of them still playing. And I can't think of anybody who wasn't really nice and really friendly and happy to help and, you know, answered all the questions. And then, you know, when we said to them, do you mind just doing a few tweets for us? And they did do them. And, and you know, I like, and I just think it, it, it was nice of to... Because I'd always assumed... Well, they, they must be nice because I, I'd suspect there's the same percentage of knobheads that are footballers as there is anywhere else. Because <laughs> yeah. it makes sense, really. it just be a bit weird. But, you yeah, know, I think that's quite a nice vindication, isn't it, when that, that sort of thing happens. Um, the podcast that, that we mentioned before, Vish, is, is about uh, mental health and men's mental health in particular. And you you talked a little bit at the beginning about maybe some periods where you might have had some struggles or, you know, might not been able to talk about it and that sort of thing. Is that something that you've had as an ongoing thing or have there just been periods of your life that you've found difficult?
1: Um, I suppose there's there's two parts to that. Um, I think what I realised a couple of years ago was I'm really bad with dealing with grief, whether it's my own or someone else's. Um, and that is something that I've kind of tried to work on, tried to get better at um, because yeah yeah just like uh, of experiences of um you know whether it's friends passing away or family passing away um and not really knowing what to do like i i I wouldn't say i'm someone i I hide my emotions but i I think i think i'd always i think i'd I'd always been of a mind where if because i because I've, i've not been afraid of showing my emotions that if I cried about something, that like that's it, done. Like I've done that, um, and not, I suppose, understanding that you you've got to work at it. There, there is a lot of work to do when it comes to not just dealing with your emotions, but but knowing that you, oh, I suppose, understanding that they they don't just go away. Like you don't just you don't just move on from that part of your life. You kind of carry it with you, whether you know whether you know it or not. And, and I suppose, like, knowing how to deal with it when it when things flare up as well. Um, in terms like, longer-term stuff, I think I've always been quite anxious in certain situations, um, and I always used to attribute that to confidence. Um, and I would have, kind of, moments throughout my life where I look back on it and having, at the time, thought it was related to confidence, wondered a bit more if it was due to just anxiety, really. Um, and... I think, you know, there'd be moments where I'd like, certainly when I was at school where I'd kind of, you know, just come back from school, go to my room and just like, you know, stay stay in bed for as, as long as possible before I'd come out for dinner um, and like, you know, cry over certain things that happened that day at school. And I certainly remember a period where it was basically every night for about a year. Um, and that, I think that was, that was part of just, me growing up but I think also at the same time I look back at it now and I wondered like well actually maybe maybe I should have like been more you know I I think think, well my parents didn't know anything about it but I wondered actually certainly thinking about it now what every now and again I do feel like that and I'm a bit like well maybe I need to like do something about this so like my um, my partner's really good for that she um, you know she's very open about all this kind of stuff she's had a lot, you know a lot of grief in her life and knows how to deal with those kind of things and is you know quite vocal about how her process is and I think that's helped me because I've I've been a- able and well certainly felt more comfortable talking to her about that In as, as um, well given that I've not really spoken to anyone else about this actually apart from you guys <laughs> now um, so yeah I, I think the um, you know what we are talking to before about the education I think one of the things that's helped me is I suppose hearing other people's stories and like realizing there are certain bits that I identified in myself and th- and thinking okay that's that's quite that's quite interesting you know I mentioned before about um you know uh I'm having a mind blank here but like you know um just saying that I have one thing or another I, I you know I I wouldn't say I have anxiety but I, I've certainly have moment I had moments and probably will continue to do so where I, I kind of i don't know it seems to manifest itself differently sometimes i just feel like really powerless about something sometimes i'll just like want to stay in bed not do anything i'm a huge comfort eater as well so <laughs> um uh so yeah like it, it you know as you can tell by how i'm kind of going around the houses here it's something that I'm, I'm constantly discovering and constantly trying to work out but i suppose that's the that's the point of it really isn't it that's the point of being able to talk about these kind of things is that it helps you work it
0: out. Do you think then you were talking about when you were sort of younger and, and, and would come home from school and at, I would suspect you'd be during your teenage years. Do you think the reason that like maybe you didn't speak to, to your parents or anything like that was it? Do you think that was anything to do with a masculinity thing at all? Or do you think that was, that was sort of holding you back with regards to that?
1: I just think it was, I, I didn't really know what it was. Like, there's definitely, I mean, certainly at the time, I, I know it's school, but certainly at the time, you, you're just not aware of any of those things, are you? And I'd like to think now, um, you know, not just from a, from a pupil point of view, but I think teachers are more aware of, of what what certain things are and, and what certain signs are. Because, you know, I wasn't bullied at school, but I think I was always, like, trying to work out my place in the ecosystem of school yeah and I never really you know I I couldn't really decide what it was and I didn't really know what it was or where I wanted to be and I felt a bit lost um even though you know the group of mates I talked about before they were all you know probably all going through the same thing but from for me I always looked at them and thought right they've they've got their shit together I need to get my shit together what do I want to be how do I want to portray myself um what do I want to focus on? Um, obviously, like girls comes into that as well, and your confidence around them, and how I suppose having that is something that you feel defines how you are, um, which is totally not a, um, a good way to think. But that was certainly something that I was thinking, and yeah, I, I think um, yeah, not so much due to due to masculinity, maybe just. Yeah, maybe just knowledge and information, and, um, and and just hearing so little of it. You know, the only things you really heard heard of at school or were were taught upon at school beyond um, you know any curricular uh, subjects were about drugs. Really, weren't there? I mean, you know, you'd have loads of drugs awareness courses, and that was about it. Yeah. Maybe a bit of alcohol awareness as well, but I think they already knew they'd lost us at 14. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was the only thing, I think.
0: Especially when we came into the lessons hungover. And they were all... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um you you were talking Avish about sort of talking to your partner about um some of the issues you said that you've you've had about sort of dealing with, with, with grief and, and that sort of thing. How have you found that you've changed in terms of maybe your approach to it or feelings towards it since you've started maybe opening up a little bit more about it?
1: Probably less, I'm probably less cold about it now. Um, I think before I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure loads of people do this as well, but I kind of would look at someone else's experiences in that and try and work out how I would go through it and then use that to scope how I was with that person. Um, and it, I, I think in if I look back in, in hindsight, I don't have to look, very, look back very far. I, I, yeah. I suppose I wouldn't be proud of how I dealt with some other people dealing with grief because I, I wasn't empathetic enough and I wasn't consistent enough. I suppose. I, suppose, I think consistency is the important thing. here. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, cause I've, yeah, I've always kind of been, yeah, as I said, kind of deal with it and like, keep it internally and, you know, speak about it and get it out there now. But even, even suppose uh, still to an extent, I'm I kind of let things build up inside me cause that seems the most effective way that certainly to my mind of how to deal with it. Um, and I think by assuming that on other people, I've, I've, yeah, um, so I suppose not been as good a friend or as as good a um, son or a, br- a brother or cousin to people who have been going through stuff, and yeah, basically just trying to work at that. Yeah,
0: and we um, I think the very first interview that we did for this podcast was with um Carl Anker, um who who writes for the Athletic. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And Carl was Carl was speaking to us about um i think his i think his family is i think his, his, his family's nigerian and he was talking about the sort of cultural differences in the approaches to mental health with regards to sort of his family's backgrounds and and sort of now that he kind of lives over it when he was living in london and, and 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 kind of the sort of cultural differences um your family background your family come from sri lanka originally is that right Yes, yeah, they come from Sri Lanka. Do you think there's anything in terms of cultural differences that's maybe impacted on your ability to sort of talk to, maybe it's like your dad or your brother or, you know, other members of the family?
1: Um, Yeah, I I would say say it is, yeah. My mum's actually a doctor, um, but I think because... um, Yeah, well... (laughs) Yeah, I think maybe maybe there is a, a cultural thing. I, I, to be honest, it's it's kind of hard for me to say in terms of to put me back then because I, I knew very little about my family's you know Sri Lankan background, I suppose when I was when I was younger, and it's only something that I've I've really delved into in the last ten years. Um, so I, I don't know if it affected it then, but I, I, but I suppose knowing what I know now of that background, it probably yeah, I probably wouldn't have done um and it probably would have been a factor um but i I suppose that I, i will maybe that's not restricted to to backgrounds per se certainly when it you know from a nationality point of view because you know i think you know you know you've you've um you know, I'm not entirely sure of your, of your background, Dan, but I, I imagine it might be might have been similar. You know, even you know, I know you're a little bit younger than me, but I wonder if your, you know, your parents might have been the same potentially. I suppose the the key thing is, if 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 families have experience of it, then they're probably better equipped to deal with it. And I don't think my family at the time had much understanding of it. Um, not that it affected my. You know uh, whether I spoke to them or not, or approached them about those kind of issues, and I think that's probably still the case now. Actually, where I don't think we've we've had it so much, or rather, if if there have been incidents, it's been attributed to something else, maybe like alcoholism or something like that. Yeah, Um, and I wonder if because of that, maybe that there's you know experience and, and openness seems to guide a lot of this and improve how we we deal with any of it really so I wonder if actually it's more about experience than it is about um you know backgrounds
0: yeah absolutely I suppose that's why it's kind of important for people to, to try and be sort of open about allowing people a space to, to talk about things because the only way everyone will kind of learn together almost isn't it you know people are all comfortable with being open about stuff and, and, and are comfortable about listening and being non-judgmental at all. It allow people to to learn stuff, I suppose. It, given your role, it, it sort of as a, a as a journalist in 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 Sportvish, and we've seen obviously a lot over the last few years about uh, sport kind of tackling sort of issues in, in terms of both within sport and and around sport with regards to stigmas around mental health and that sort of thing. With sort of heads up campaign and minds getting involved with the Football League and sort of how. Important, or you know, how, how powerful do you think that, that sport can be in terms of driving positive change?
1: Oh yeah, incredibly important because I think when you get athletes involved in in this kind of thing, especially on this particular issue, we we you know I, I, when I say we, I mean like kind of I suppose me particularly in in journalism, it's almost our job to paint these guys and girls as superheroes. Like, we, we peddle their feats and we riff about them in ways that they're they're not of this world, that they're superhuman. And I think when you have schemes like Heads Up and, and others that draw awareness to mental health issues and use those same people, I think the message is so much more profound because you see, you know, I, I wrote this about Sarah Taylor, the um, England women's wiki keeper who retired i think a year ago now and that like her you know her legacy itself will be what she deals with and and what she's achieved but more broadly for everyone else i think it was that she showed people that you know the you can be great and struggle it's not a case it's not one or the other and i think that's quite an important message because she did incredible things as as did other people as have other people who've, who've come out and told their stories, but they don't, you know, the, the issues that she had, particularly around anxiety, they didn't define her, but there's something that she deals with and she was able to deal with them for as long as, she, as long as she has, and she will continue to deal with them. But she didn't, it, it didn't define her. She didn't let it define her. And I think, you know, having her story and and being able to tell it from from covering women's cricket, and her, you know, openly talking about it, I think, it, you know, you could see like whenever you t- you see an interview tweet out about her, so many people respond to it because like it's incredible that she's flying the flag for this kind of stuff. And and from cricket's point of view, Marcus Tr- Triscothic before before her as well. Um, so yeah, it, it is so important that they're they're part of this, and even to be honest, even even for athletes that aren't actually you know haven't been diagnosed with any kind of men- mental health issues or ailments, I think it's so important for them to to align with it as well because it just you know more and more people can help out with this, can't they? And more and more people by being aware of it can be part of the solution as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was um, that was such a good uh, way of putting it, Dave. About you can be you can be great, but also have have struggles as well. And I think it, it I think that's possibly one of the things that sport need you know could get better at recognizing was uh, we we've asked a few times about whether a kind of football particularly conflates sort of you know sort of psychology and, and and mental health in terms of you know mental strength and you know they talk about having a strong mentality and that sort of thing and often it's kind of like well if you. have if you've got anxiety or depression, then you can't have a strong mentality, which obviously isn't true. Um, and maybe one of those things that could be, could be better worked on. Um, during lockdown, you, you joined the the football Ramble team. How did they, um, how did that come about?
1: Oh, mate, no idea to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it was really, um, kind of really out of the blue i um I, I'd, I'd done some work for them before i did the um greatest game podcast with marcus speller and um jonathan wilson which is still going on now and uh, yeah they were kind of looking to increase their team and go daily I, I think it was off the back of their plans they originally had for the euros which they were going to roll out and then yeah they they were looking for kind of different people to do things obviously jules was already on board jules breach um Andy Brassel was already there and Kate Motion and started doing a book club and bits here and there. And yeah, they kind of, they looked around and I, and luckily I think they've asked, they asked people who I was nice to most recently, I suppose. And um, they put in a good word for me and uh, got a call from Luke. And um, yeah, like it was honestly, it was really surreal. I was, um, so my partner works in North London and she was working all the way through lockdown. And because she couldn't take the train, I was driving her in and using a separate space in her workspace where, as an office basically. And so on the drive, we'd listen to you know music and podcasts here and there. And so you know, one week I'm driving and listening to the Football Ramble, and then the next week when I'm driving her, we're listening to me in the Football Ramble, which was pretty <laughs> random. Um, and now I said that it sounds pretty self-indulgent as well. I, I think only Kanye listens to his own music. That's um, no, I,
0: didn't do it. I, I you know, I am. Um... I, I only listen to my bit of the recordings when I'm at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the
1: way to go. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that that's kind of how it's come about, really. And then, you know, Luke called me up and and asked me if I'd be interested, and and mentioned about it going to um, you know, uh, every weekday, and if I want to be a part of it and what that would mean, and and kind of how how it would go, and and yeah, like it was um, kind of all happened very quickly, but they yeah i' I've been a fan of the podcast for such a long time um and it was pretty weird it's pretty weird being in a podcast with people that you listen to a lot, and you know I found myself in that first episode I did my first episode with Marcus and Pete, and I found myself just like I just stopped paying attention to what I needed to do and was just listening to them. And I kind of had to slap out of it, but I, no shit, I'm in this podcast. I can't just listen to the whole thing. I need to contribute at some point. Um, but honestly, it's been it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, the people are so welcoming. The team are incredible and really talented. And um, yeah, you kind of, I feel like I'm in mean, I'm part of something very good and and very important as well. And I'm I think every day I'm wary about letting them down. But um, no, it's going well so far.
0: Yeah, no, it's. Um and I have both both been been fans for years and years. We've we've been to a couple of live shows as well, and, and we we went to one in Birmingham, and then ended up in a bit of a weird drunk conversation with Pete. And I'm I halfway through being like, "This is so surreal. Like, what on if is happening?" And then and then um and then we were talking to to um, Marcus, and he said I had long hair at the time, and he started telling me that I looked like Lee Sharp, and I was like. <laughs> It was just all so peculiar. Um, I can see that. I can see the knee shot, dude. <laughs> I took it as a compliment. I thought, I'll, I'll take that. I've been, certainly been called worse. <laughs> um, I must admit, this. when, um, obviously, I mean, you'll know, obviously, from from listening to it, and you get kind of used to, obviously, the, the, the setup and the, the characters and, 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 and the way that it works. And then when it was all changed around, it was quite like it was quite weird to, to start with, to get used to, but it, I think it's been absolutely brilliant. And and, and, I, and I comment quite a lot about, you know, it, I didn't think the Ramble could ever get any better. And then it it has done, do you know what I mean? With, with like yourself being on there and, and Kate and, and Jules and Andy and stuff. And it just, they changed, you know, you've all changed the dynamic of it. And it's, 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 but it's still got that same essence to it, which is, which must be, um which must be quite heartening, I suppose, to be involved with it. Um, is it as fun to be involved as it looks from the outside?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. That That's the one thing I've, I've loved about it, actually. You kind of imagine what they, you know, the conversation they'd have off mic. And while there is a lot of planning that goes into it, it is, it is properly fun, yeah, yeah. I, 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 to be honest, I don't think I'd be, I mean, you know, it, it's always great to be a part of it, but I think that was one of the things, you know, while they were obviously sussing me out, I was trying to, suss them out in the first couple of shows and i think that's what you know maybe after the first one actually i was a bit like god this is like exactly as fun as i thought it would be not just the recording part of it but but everyone involved and kind of the ideas that everyone has and their ambition it's i mean you've got to go some way to having a podcast for that long and for it to be as accessible as it is and it's interesting like you know what you talked about um getting uh you know uh, getting used to it for so long uh, when, uh, when they told me they weren't or when Luke mentioned that you know, it was going to be a daily my first question was oh wow so you, so it's not gonna be the four of you um and I think you know being a Ramble fan I knew what that meant in terms of uh, I, knew, I knew the gravity of it and I think that kind of that made me all the more all the more driven I was supposed to make it try and make it a success and try and make my part of it a success at least because i didn't want to be the guy that comes in and then you know ruins it all um <laughs> and i appreciate the like you know it, it's not for everyone you know i get ta- you get tagged into little bits here and there on on facebook or not facebook for twitter and stuff like that um, but by and large the reaction's been been great actually and i think even the people who um who accept or who, who have um been a bit dismayed by the by the shift I, th- I think you know some of them are coming around certainly the ones that i'm speaking to anyway um i've muted any- to, to be fair i was gonna say i've muted some of the more vociferous ones but people have been um people have been quite um i suppose been quite civil with their feedback even if it hasn't been complimentary so can't really complain about that to be honest
0: yeah absolutely As we um we actually did an interview with luke a little while back um and that type of thing come up to, to sort of uh, same with with miguel delaney as well as i'm sure you can imagine with how you sort of deal with interaction and stuff on twitter is that kind of your general approach to sort of mute and ignore almost to, to, to sort of not give them a, a platform
1: um you know what I, I would say i kind of interact with most abuse um and, and i and i suppose it ranges doesn't it someone someone might say that you've written a, you know you've written a shit piece and I'd feel inclined to ask why. Like, why why do you think it's shit? What was shit about it? Um, and often you can get in a conversation that, that could lead to quite interesting places, to be honest, like why why they thought, you know, they might open your eyes to something that you didn't consider and therefore, you know, they're probably in the right and and you can kind of bear that in mind, bear that criticism, criticism in mind going forward. Um, but whenever it's like, I'll, I'll be honest, like, sometimes when it's like quite bad and, out of hand I, I do kind of soak the fires a bit um i i'm trying to put this diplomatically but let's say i, I enjoy swearing and i um you know I sometimes use that quite liberally on, on twitter when it comes to dealing with these kind of things um and yeah I, I, that that's kind of my way of coping it but but i i would only really do that if it's someone that i know is looking for a you know looking for a bit of a fight um and and sometimes i'm willing to give them that fight because it's as cathartic for me as it might be for them um but generally yeah i kind of i'll I'll talk to people and and try and work it out and if if it's beyond salvageable i'll I'll move on i might mute um i'm not yeah in fact i don't think i've blocked anyone actually um i've been blocked but i haven't blocked yeah so um
0: what did you get blocked for
1: you know what, I, I think I got blocked for escalating some grief, to be honest. I think, I think I might have got blocked for language, yeah. Someone someone really had a go, yeah, I remember this, yeah, it was last summer. Someone who really had a go at me, and I don't. I think they didn't expect that I'd come back with similar language that they came at me, and they were really shocked by it, and they were like, oh, I can't believe a professional journalist is talking like this. And I was like, mate, you just called me what you called me. I, you know, wouldn't let that stand in the street. In the park, yeah. why would I, you know? Why do why would I let it stand here where you've got got direct access to my phone? Basically, you know, because I'm because I'm on Twitter on that. So I was like, yeah, no, I'll just I'll just give it back. And um, yeah, they didn't like that too much.
0: <laughs> yeah, probably probably as you say, just not expecting it to to kind of come back on them. I am. Um, I always wonder how to kind of sort of reconcile that thing between not responding because you don't want to engage, but also being like, no, sometimes people need to be told. Do you know what I mean? Like that type of, that balance.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you don't want them to think they've had the last word as well. That's that's a difficult thing with Twitter. It's all about the last word.
2: I, I was reading uh, the interview that you did with Stakhanov to introduce you to the Football Ramble uh, faithful. And um, you actually mentioned how privileged you were to be able to witness live football during a lockdown period and beyond. Um, just... For like obviously, because we haven't been there, we can only hear, you know, the commentators telling us uh, sorry for the bad language on the TV. <laughs> what has it been like um, actually watching those games?
1: Um, yeah, it's been it's been very weird. Uh, I suppose the, you know, the football's been, you know, the football's still been of of the standard you expect. Um, obviously. People seem to have forgotten how to defend. Um, That's fair enough. I thought the only one of the only (laughs) suspects was COVID was losing losing your taste, but apparently it's losing your man as well. Um, (laughs) But the, um, you know what you notice watching that. I I wasn't at the. I wasn't at Ellen Road for the Leeds United Liverpool game. Um, But watching that, I thought, and I suppose even the Fulham game before that, where it was the first game back at. Leeds had at home since it got relegated from the Premier League. Watching that, I was like, like even at home, you're like, God, imagine how loud that would be there. Because I suppose at Ellen Road as well, when it's packed, the fans are basically falling onto the pitch. Mm. And it's got that incredible atmosphere. But the, one, the games I've been at, when you notice it the most, actually, is when it's a bad game, not when there are loads of goals. Because you can get caught up in goals yourself, can't you? You can, you know, you can watch the game and it's certainly when you're, when you're writing on it, there's just like loads of different things to note down. So you, you, the time ends up flying by, but I think it's when it's a bad game or when it's, you know, low scoring game, that's when you notice the fans more because you realize how much the fans drive the players in those, in those moments. I I think one of the worst games I covered was um, Spurs-Everton, not the one that, not the one that started the league, but the one during the restart, which was dreadful dreadful, dreadful, dreadful. And, you know, the joke was, or, you know, maybe it was a good thing that fans weren't here. But actually, I thought about it and I was like, even in a bad game, that game means something to someone. It means something to the bloke who's been there, you know, to every home game that season and for the last 10 years. It means something to the kid who might have got a ticket, you know, on a whim, that would be their first game. You know, it might have been someone's birthday present. It might have been... You know, some coming back from somewhere, some people reuniting with each other. You know, we we all have, we always have, you know, we all have, you know, traditions when it comes to football. It's, it can be a place where we go see our mates, our mates that we happen to only see when we go to football or the start of new experiences. Um, and yeah, that that was when it really hit home, actually, that like, good it would i know it's a bit of a cliche but the football losing its soul is not it's not really a phrase i'd use very often but in that moment you realize how important that soul is to the fabric of the game and how important it is for fan fans to give context to to the here and now not just you know more broadly of a league table but just like right okay fans were the reason that Spurs might have picked up their performance, or the reason that Everton might have been a bit more intimidated. You know, you look, you look at that City game. Um, oh, sorry, that's what I mean. Yeah, not I said, did I say Liverpool leeds Liverpool? Didn't I? I'm, sorry, I meant the Leeds Man City game just gone. Um, you look at that, and you're like, God, imagine, yeah, just imagine if they were there. Imagine if they could experience that, because that was. I mean, that was one of a kind. Yeah, that was proper, like, you know, (laughs) a punch-up, basically. It was brilliant. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, you touched on
2: there, there's been a lot of talk about football losing kind of its soul, really, in in terms of fans not being there and and other changes that have happened uh, Well, during the lockdown period and and beyond. Uh, Football's kind of in a a pretty precarious place right now um, where you've got a lot of clubs that could go to the wall. There's a lot of stuff being said where you know, fans might might not be back till next year. Um, There might not be a way out for some clubs. But then we've got the... There is a lot of clubs spending a lot of money Um, and clubs getting rid of staff. And it's becoming a bit of a PR nightmare. My question to you would be, do you think it's kind of almost becoming impossible for football to call itself a... Typical working class game.
1: Yeah, certainly at the certainly at the top levels. Yeah, I think what one of the one of the beauties of football is that it's you know it's a meritocratic game with the, the onus on 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 talent and the fact that it's also a sport you can just you know you don't need to be rich to play. You know, you can you can just you just need a football and some mates play with, and if you don't have mates to play with, and you just need a wall, really. But um, it's meritocratic, but what we've what we've realised, certainly more in the pandemic, but it's been more apparent when you see the rise of super clubs and things like that, is that it's meritocratic to a point. You know, you'll reach players, I suppose especially, will reach a ceiling where it is about who you know, it is about who your agent is, it is about where you grew up as well. Um, And I think it's weird to think that those barriers are only more prevalent at the top considering you know how people get into the game um and yeah certainly with the way that football seems to be turning its back on, on casual workers and you think when they talk about the sums that they're you know that they're in line to lose you know they were talk about the hundreds of millions and then you know they dropped 45 million on a on a new midfielder or spend 120 million in the transfer window. It's, uh, or 200 million in some cases. It's, yeah, it's particularly galling. And I, I can understand why there is a reticence to, um, I suppose, conflate the two, to just see one sum of money and equate it with another and think that football is its, itself is, is the problem here. But, you know, we've got to look at the owners. We've got to look at the government who through no reason other than to distract from their own shortcomings, throw footballers on the bus at every at the first opportunity. And also the billionaire owners who own a lot of the companies that certain governments are turning a blind eye to, um, the way they can just, you know, uh, somehow be above any kind of criticism. You know, like I, I saw, um, you know, uh, <laughs> there's obviously the story about Gunnasaurus getting, getting a sack and Mesut Ozil coming out and saying that he, um, uh, you know, he he wants to front his wages for as long as um Ozil's an Arsenal player, um, and there were spe- there were people genuinely defending Stan Kroenke in this situation. Like, how I don't know, how tribal a football fan do you have to be to defend a billionaire owner who is using your club as a bit of a plaything and who has the power to, you know, the power um, with no real skin off his nose to actually. Impact people's lives for the better. The people who help in the day-to-day running of this club, um, yeah, it, it's staggering, really. I mean, that's that's a really good point. It, it's not something I thought of before because, to be honest, I think football, probably top-level football, hasn't been working class for a while now. Especially when you when you consider how many people were actually playing, you know, the for example, the London minimum wage to their staff. It's astounding, really, how few that was. Um, but yeah, uh, I think I think it's even more pronounced now that. So about uh, Miguel Delaney um, wrote this great piece about super clubs um, about a year ago now, and he's often talked about how football is, you know, has been kind of systematically chipping away at its soul at the, at the top levels of the game. And one of the things that came out of the pandemic, I suppose, you know, that, that phrase, don't, um, don't waste a crisis. And, you know, the pandemic was a moment to reassess to stop football slide um, further into, I suppose, into the hands of uh, you know sports washing and all kinds of you know problematic people and problematic situations. It was a chance to to reassess its efficiencies and make it, uh, I suppose, a morally cleaner sport. And that seems to not just has that not happened, but we seem to be accelerated towards that wrong direction so yeah i mean i suppose the answer is yes it is becoming increasingly hard to call it a working class sport yeah
2: you're a big cricket fan aren't you as well um yeah yeah i've been following a a, a few of your your cricket tweets as well and i found them quite funny Um, (laughs) particularly i think there was a couple of joe denley ones as well which i which i quite liked um, I think there was Joe Denley reading Joe Denley memes, which was funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously cricket's been in, in, in the news for, for a lot of reasons this year. They've obviously done really well to get the games on that they needed to get on. They're struggling with a, the pandemic as well. They're, they're going to cut about 50 odd jobs at the ECB. They're you know struggling for money. And then in amongst all this, they've had so many... Individual, you know, achievements with Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad. So the good side of it's good, and then they've still got these massive problems in terms of um, kind of institutional racism, really. Um, which isn't for me. I I'm, I play cricket myself. It's it's not something I've personally ever seen um, in in when I've been playing on a weekend. Um, but obviously, you did the the piece on Azim Rafiq. Um, and his battle against the uh, institutional racism, particularly at Yorkshire County uh, Cricket Club. Um, just firstly, as a as a as a cricket fan, how how does that make you feel uh, when you're writing that piece? Because obviously, cricket's it's quite an enjoyable game if you like it. It's you know, outside looking in; it looks absolutely stupid. But <laughs> I mean, it that must have been I assume must have been really kind of disappointing uh, to
1: have to write a piece like that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. Um, pieces like that aren't the reason that you get into sports journalism. Uh, but that doesn't make them any less important. And that doesn't make them any less part of your job. Um, and and from a personal point of view, it's not, a, it's not a piece I'm wanting to write at all, but it was a piece I knew I had to write. Um, not least in my job, but also as a British Asian, as someone who's seen some of those incidents happen in in front of him, um, and I suppose been on been on the receiving end of, of, of bits of what um, Azim was talking about, um, and also just speaking to people and realizing that it was, you know, I, I know how prevalent it is, but I think I was surprised at how many. You know, I, I spoke to, I've spoken to so many different people about about the issue of, of racism in in cricket and yeah and and to see it's a prevalent at the top level I think that was that was quite surprising to me um you know cricket, English cricket in particular has always had a, had an issue with representation you know when you consider the the recreational game there are so many British Asians and yet so few as you go, As you move up, um, now there are obviously a variety of reasons for that, and one of the reasons that Azeem cites, which is the one that's pretty easy to eradicate, is um, you know, this institutional racism in the way that players of of different backgrounds, not even just Asian backgrounds, of different backgrounds are made to feel um, unwelcome, whether that's willfully or not. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't a yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah, just to repeat myself, really, it, it wasn't a great piece to write, but it was one I had to, yeah.
2: And um, in the article, uh, one of the, the lines that really struck me was that you'd actually heard um, racist behavior in the press box, uh, which kind of shocked me, really, um, because you don't really expect that. Um, so I guess what, I, what my question would be was when you hear that. First of all, what's it like for yourself, and then what is the actual reaction to, to something like that in
1: the modern day? Um, well, so yeah, there, there was twice. Was it specifically in a press box, and I think the, my reaction both times was just anger, really. And, and I think if they were. <laughs> maybe if they were 30 years younger, I would have made something of it. Um, mm. they, <laughs> uh, Cause you can't hit an old bloke. Can you, it just looks bad. No. It? Um, so yeah. And, and to be honest, I kind of, I didn't do anything. I regret not doing anything, not in terms of reporting it, but I think just like standing up and, and saying something and telling them why it was wrong. And ma- I suppose making a bit of a scene to be honest, but um I think also at the time I was a bit like, I just, it was quite early on. um, And they were like two kind of relatively established journalists. And yeah, I I kind of heard it and I I kind of wanted to correct them, but also thought, you know, kids stay in your lane here a bit, you know, you're, you don't that want to annoy the wrong person. That might mean you're not getting work or this, that, and the other. I, I think it was, it maybe wasn't as calculated as that, but I think that was certainly, Thinking of, of not making a scene, I suppose. Um, I think if it happened now, if I saw it happen now to someone else, and that, that, any kind of abuse, you know, really, the sex it in particular, which is also something that um, cricket and um, you know the other side of the boundary has had to work out and had to have some serious conversations about itself in the last um, few years after you know how many decades of um, pretty abhorrent behaviour on that front. Um, yeah, but I think. I, And also anyone else, you know, if you see it now, you kind of say something about it, don't you? You make a, you make a scene, you report it to the right people. Um, yeah, I suppose it was. A, it's a, a bit of a learning experience, really. I, and I think maybe I was going to say, with all due respect, but uh, kind of t- with no due respect, whatever to to those two particular people. I think if they were more prominent, I would have made something about it. Um, but the fact that they're kind of um, not really in the industry anymore, probably. Um, you know, probably wise to bite my tongue about to be honest
2: at the start of the West Indies series uh, there was a lot of um it was it was quite close to, with the black lives matter movement and there was a lot of uh lot of stuff done a lot of videos produced uh, around the issues of racism uh, with Michael Holden and Nebby rainford Brent and and Isha goa as well <laughs> those videos when I watched them hit home really hard and i've I've seen Michael Holden talk about um, racism in sports and in, in cricket and in, in society for, for a number of years. Um, I think most famously, went to Australia on a tour and, and kicked the stumps over. That's be just because it was, it was it was downright cheating, and it was it was you know racially racially motivated. Recently, come out and, and kind of criticised uh, England and Australian sides for for not taking the knee in their recent series. Uh, he kind of called it a, a lame excuse, and it, it, it provoked a, a reaction from from Geoffrey Archer as well. First of all, do, do you think that's kind of fair that that Holding comes out and calls it a bit of a lame excuse? And and do you think that because I think Les Ferdinand's mentioned it in terms of football as well that, that we kind of need to move on with more actions instead of instead of these. These actions, <laughs> I can't think of the other words uh, on the issue.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think holding was right. Um, when he was talking about the excuse, because like to talk specifically about the excuse, it was off the back of something that Aaron Finch had said, and it wasn't particularly convincing. And I think Finch didn't do himself any favors actually, because it was just you know, he, he was he was talking about it like it was an incident rather than a movement. Um, which is <laughs> it's kind of totally got the wrong end of the stick and yeah, pretty disappointing from Finch, but uh, you know, hopefully he's kind of learned from it and and reassessed. But with the, you know, you mentioned Les Ferdinand there. That's quite an interesting thing because, you know, I I myself, you know, I'm not black, but you know, I can identify with some of the issues that they're talking about. And also, you know, having spoken to people who've been quite, um, quite vocal about their experiences and, uh, you know, Ebony is a good mate of mine. Um, so I've spoken to her a lot about it. I think I even cited her in that piece I wrote about Azeem actually. But one of the things about um, the taking the knee that I, I'm kind of working my way around, um, and it's mainly due to to what Les was so, so late. I called him Sir Les there, <laughs> what now right was saying, um, and those other conversations, is that I, I think the power of the knee. so to my mind it still exists to my mind it still raises awareness and it still ensures that those conversations and those actions are still play- taking place what i think um what i totally agree with um ferdinand about was that actually now by now we should have seen some of that you know we should have seen some something come to fruition we not just another panel not just you know another statement not not just another i suppose series of knees we should we should see some tangible change now it's been a few months there's been nothing to my mind that suggests that things are moving behind the doors of the the premier league now i I could be wrong there and i'd happily hold my hands up if i was because that was my main issue with the ecb actually until i you know made some calls and, and spoke to them about what they've been doing and that's what um Joffre Archer was saying when he when he came back at uh, Michael Holding there, he was talking about, well, actually, you know, there is stuff being done. There is stuff that, you know, the CEO Tom Harrison is quite heavily involved with, and he's he's actually having conversations with with people and hearing these stories. And um is I think he's due to announce an official look into the institutional racism within English cricket. Um I just think with with football, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Because despite the strong representation there and having so many people, I think seeing the power of it, I think is still still quite important. But yeah, I think the, he's totally right in that there's a danger of it just becoming an empty gesture because when, you know, and it's, it's the right question to ask is, when do we stop doing it? Do we just con- perpetually continue? Um, are, are we going to be in a situation where we have to you know, that's that's I suppose the. You can tell I'm just working out on the spot, can't you? Because yeah, this is the way it goes. But that ultimately is going to be something that we are going to have to to answer head on. In that, I I think we know enough now to realise that this kind of the racism that uh, black people in particular experience in this country and you know, in the US, that isn't going to suddenly change in the lifetime of a lot of people that are involved in it. It can get better, and what we've seen over the last few months is, is it can, can get better very quickly because we can have these conversations in the open now, which is what The Knee was about. It was about bringing it to a public forum. Um, but in terms of how long we continue that for, I don't know, and I don't know the right or wrong answer. I suppose the wrong answer essentially is whatever answer I give because it's, you know, there's no way you can say with any certainty what the right thing to do here is. But I just think people would be less protective over the knee as am I, if we could see something being put in place where, whether it's not, not simply a Rooney rule, but, but a scheme that allows, um, I suppose more, uh, you know, less discrimination when it comes to um, coaching roles, less discrimination when it comes to coaching badges, and who you know how to take them, making the game. Uh, you know, we touched on before about um, working the not being able to call it a working class issue. If we could, or a working class game, if we could call it a working class game, if we could remove those barriers, then we could actually see a lot, a lot of the other cultural issues around it sort themselves out because we're just making the game more open. And I think that fundamentally is the more important thing. And I think that's that's a lot of the reason that people have an issue with um, football having to confront these issues around race because they see so many black players in the Premier League they see so many black players in our England national team and they think, well, what problem? And I think sometimes that comes from quite a, a genuine place, you know, not just from people trying to stir up shit or not from people trying to be woefully naive. I think people don't actually understand what the issues are. Um, and that can come from taking the knee. That education can come from taking the knee, but I think now maybe some people are you know, I'm I'm running rings around myself here, but I think maybe now some people, when they object to them, they, they object to it because they've seen it so much, not because they, you know, disagree with the issue. And I think it's being it's very hard to split the two right now, which is why I think, you know, we're seeing so much anger towards it as well. You know, one of the things that football's got to get right here in terms of, so I'm thinking specifically about the Premier League is when they do if they are going to come in and say, you know, and say that they're not going to do it anymore, they've got to get that messaging absolutely bang on. And they're not going to get it bang on because it's quite, it's it's a near impossible thing to do, but they've got to ensure they don't mess it up. And I think they really need to look into how they do it. And also what they provide alongside it. You know, what, what, what becomes of this whole movement? Otherwise it's been for nothing really, hasn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. What, yeah you've just you've just you know you 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 then you're pissing everyone off aren't you because some people are going to say well, why the hell do we do that in the first place or what a waste of time or oh we told you so blah 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 um you know there's flag nutters on twitter or it's going to be um you know and then at the same time people who stood up for the call or you know stood up for the cause and put you know aligned with it and threw everything into it are like "Right, wow, well that's it then you just it's like it never happened so that, that's something they really have to have to sort out. And um, uh, yeah, just get right, yeah.
0: Welcome back. You are still listening to Man Marking. I've still got Ryan and Ant in the air in the Zoom studio. The Zoomio. No,
2: no, not for me, Paul. No,
0: no, that doesn't work, does it? Anyway, yeah. moving on. So, we've just had Vicious interview there. Quite a lot of really interesting themes that, that that we discussed there. One question that you asked, Ant, which I thought was particularly interesting and worth us kind of delving into a little bit more, was the idea that the football can almost no longer class itself as a, a the sport of the working class man.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I think you, you can see that by the price it costs to go to a game. To be honest, I don't think. Yeah. And it's been something that's spoken about for years and years. And I think they eventually tried ch- I think they eventually got rid of the cat categories that they have for like away games. I think I remember seeing QPR were charging like fifty to seventy quid for like United fans to go go watch them.
0: Like, Remember that? We used to have that tiering system, didn't we? A, A B and yeah. C matches. That was so weird.
2: Yeah. And, and I think, so I think they've obviously got rid of that. And I think they, they tried to go, I think it's 30 pound now. Um,
0: they wanted but, 20s plenty, didn't they? That was the campaign. Yeah. And they got it to 30.
2: Um, so I think they're still campaigning. And, you know, there's been various, you know, I'd still call call them like protests really. And, and stuff at games where it's like, well, you know, you're literally charging too much for for what this game is. And it, there's a lot about, you know, the game's gone and all that. And we, you know, there's a big, a l- lot of like comedy stuff that you can get from it, but it has changed a lot. And it's, it, you know, I don't think you, you're ever going to get back to it unless you get back.
0: Is it a bad thing? I mean, we talked to Rob Watton a little bit about, um, the difference that Sky has made to, to football and whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. I know it's the the, 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 the if you look at kind of football in the 80s that the 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 atmosphere of it and the the, the sort of the difficulty was it was happening with hooliganism and the crowds were low and it was an environment that people didn't want to attend whereas i would suggest the football grounds now obviously outside the COVID, are places that people would take their family and and and, and are more the type of places where lots of people would like to go so I wonder how much of it is it is a bad thing that it's that it's changed. I know it's the cost not, element is 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 certainly certainly a, a, an outlier to that, but I'd I'd suggest broadly speaking, the football is a much better environment now to go to than it was 30, 40 years ago.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know whether it's a completely bad thing. I I wouldn't say it's a, 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 you know a horrendous thing to to do, but I, I wonder whether it's not as accessible for everyone. Which yes, Which is my, which that's is my true. point. Um, yeah. I think it's, it, you know, it is difficult and I think part of it's always going to be, you know, well, you've got a league that earns £5 billion on the TV money. So you're going to struggle with that, but you'd like to think, I mean, you'd like to hope that when fans do come back to the grounds that they don't take the mick out of them, they don't charge them too much, but... I did see when Chelsea said they can have 2,000 fans, they were charging it at uh, whatever price they want, which might be okay considering the area that Chelsea is, you know, it is very affluent. So it, it's difficult, but I think this is right. If you give it back to the working class fans and you give it back to, to the, the roots that you, you actually have, it might grow in a better way. It might yeah. go in a more, you know, a less seedy
0: way. Yeah, more sustainable as well. I think yeah, one of the possibly, issues yeah. that, that football has, particularly at the top level, is that, as you say, that accessibility means that you look around the grounds of Premier League games, it's a very old fan base. It's the same guys that were going 30, 40 years ago. They're just 30, 40 years older. And younger people are struggling to get into grounds. I think that's, you know, when they do that um, the football fans report thing every year with the, on the BBC, and the demographic gets older and older every year because... People of a a younger age who are obviously earning more, less money, sorry, as they they start their sort of working life off, are finding it difficult to be able to justify paying 50, 60, 70 quid to go to football matches.
2: We're we're quite, you know, fortunate that Tramir around the corner, Tramir aren't a great side, they're not high in the leagues, but they were at one point doing a championship. I don't remember it being that much back then.
0: Different era, though, wasn't
2: it? Absolutely a different era. But, you know, we are quite fortunate that we've been able to go to, to games pretty much since we were, what, the age of eight to upwards? Oh, age. hugely. So I,
0: I, I think it's a. I, there's an interesting conversation, and we could p- potentially do a not for me, Clive, on it about, you know, this sort of feeling of if you support, like, a lower league club, like your local team, for example, that it's some kind of, like, Noble service that you're providing, or you know, you're some kind of more morally better as a football fan because you support a lower league team rather than like a big, glitzy Premier League team. I wonder if there's a bit of a sea change that people are having with regards to the idea of supporting your local team, a smaller club, means that your access to football and your experience in football is completely. Improved than it would be from supporting a Premier League team because the money that you have to spend and the difficulty you have in actually being able to go to these things and the disconnection between the club and its supporters is greater, you know, greater and getting greater all the time. That I wonder if there may be more and more people that may go to sort of, I mean, we've seen it with like the likes of, like, say, like Dulwich Hamlet or what is the, what's that hashtag FC or whatever they're called, mm-hmm. these sort of grassroots football clubs that are maybe trying to reconnect people with their you know, with, 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 with the communities and with people itself might be uh, might be on the rise. Or I might just be being a little bit optimistic, to be honest with you. But there you go. Um, one other thing that Vish talked about, which is something that has come up in quite a lot of episodes, and something that Rick Edwards and Christian Walsh both mentioned too, was about the influence that Vish, Vish's partner, had had on his life in terms of his ability to talk about the things that were difficult for his mental health. So for Vish, something that he found difficult as a child and, and becoming an adult was talking about grief. And he said that his partner and the way that their family are about talking about certain difficult issues like grief, they're very open and, and, and honest about the way that they deal with them. It's helped him in the way that he's he's been able to deal with it as an individual. And we've said that the three of us as well about the difference between how uh, our partners maybe approach things and how they may be able to to help us discuss things. I know that's certainly very true of you, Ryan.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always good to, to seek out anybody for a difference of opinion because I think when you're struggling and you're thinking in your own mindset and you're probably thinking in a negative way, it's good to bring anybody in, and especially those closest around us, to give us a bit more of a, an honest... Uh, subjective viewpoints and sprinkle a bit of positivity in there along the way as well. Um, But ultimately, there's just some things you shouldn't and can't tackle alone. And I think going through them and opening up to the people closest to you is is one of the most sensible things you can do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's an ongoing theme, isn't it, really, that we have with people's partners? And I know I'd I'd, I'd categorise myself in that as well, that the difference to being in, in... in that relationship has had, and the difference that the, the, the person that you share that that, you, that life with has, has made to your mental well-being—it's certainly something that, that that I've found as well, and something that comes up on a on a regular occasion with these interviews.
2: Well, the friends are—I mean, the friends at the end of the day as well, aren't they? So it, it's not—I mean, to me, it's not—it's not really like the, a shock to be able to go to your partner because you should be able to do that. Like, first and foremost you're interested in them they're interested in you you like each other it's like being friends so it, what's better and what's more of a shock is that people don't to be mm. honest and people bottle it up and people just get on with it and for years and years there's this like old kind of way of thinking about your partner or your girlfriend or your wife that it's like. Uh, she doesn't need to know. lad, don't worry. I'm out on the ale. Blah blah blah. They're always
0: they're always northern these characters, aren't they?
2: It's <laughs> the only one I can do. <laughs> um, they're never from it, Norfolk. But, it, but, but oh God, but it is that it is that um that kind of thing, that kind of joke, and it's like oh yeah, don't worry. And I think maybe that is a change in like society where where you know men have definitely become more comfortable talking to other people
0: i wonder if it's um there's that whole old adage of masculinity about you know you're that you're the breadwinner and you're the person who's running the house and you're the person who's looking after your, your your partner so to speak and maybe now because of the way that society is changing the the way that we categorize things like vulnerability and weakness and stuff are different or at least changing so the men are feeling as though they can show weakness to their partner and that's showing strength and I think that's 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 a positive thing. And I think we'd probably, I'd certainly suggest that it, the, the the number of times that we've had it mentioned, I mean, as we said, Rick and Christian both mentioned it, Vish mentioned it. I can remember off the top of my head, Jamie Curton's talked about it before, um, Luke Moore talked about it, about the kind of positive influence that that, that female voice in their life has had. Completely think
2: different it perspective, is. isn't
3: it? I think it probably improves. The relationship as well because off the back of it they think I'll they trust me enough to, to come to me with it yeah. share the problem like I think once somebody does that with you the, the sort of repercussions of that if someone if yourself or man came to me or my partner came to me and asked and said look well, I'm struggling with this and that obviously give them advice deal with it head on and then I think off the back of that you go at least they think I'm a person they can share that with and I'm a person that could help them with it even if I couldn't possibly help with my advice, I could maybe put them in the right direction or bring someone else into the circle who could help. I think you become stronger off the back of that. And I also think there's a lot more people being comfortable sharing it with strangers now as well. You see a lot of things online where it's like, nobody knows this about me, but I've been writing a blog for six months or here's something you might not know about me. And the reactions normally, well, I think always is positive. Um, So again, as you've said, the more people do that the more the people feel comfortable coming forward i'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before i don't know a lot of people have heard this but if you are thinking about sharing just have a little think of not only who you're helping but you're helping yourself in that process like uh, quite a nice process to go through to get it off your chest and and see the see the reaction to it
0: yeah it's that that process of once you share that feeling sharing that thought how much better that feels on the back of it because you've, mm-hmm. you vocalized it and put it out into a, into a different sphere. And that might be to a friend or to a partner or to, you know, like you say, it might Whatever be to strangers, with, yeah, yeah. whichever the most comfortable way of doing it is, get that thing off your chest, get it out to somebody and you won't, you know, it'll be amazing the difference that it makes to your life and to the way that you process processing that information.
3: Yeah. And, um- Sorry Dan, just very really quickly, sometimes the person you're sharing with won't understand the problem, it might be something to do with the job or some, something else that's gone on that you have no understanding of, but it doesn't mean you can't help, doesn't mean you can't say things to comfort them or push them in a direction that will help them improve the situation, so often when like I speak to my partner about anything or the other way around about things that none, none of us, like her job's nothing to do, I know anything about, and my job's nothing. She knows anything about, but it doesn't mean we can't help each other in our yeah. jobs or whatever it may be. So,
0: even if it's even if it's just listening, mm-hmm. even if it's just listening and taking part in that good. conversation. And I suppose on the flip side, I think that a good piece of advice for everybody would be, you know, everyone wants people to start sharing more and, and opening up more, and I think that that is that is a. a a, a sort of an environment that you know a thought process that is kind of changing and, and moving in a more positive direction but equally from the other sides of it if you're somebody who is a friend a partner a relative a colleague whatever it might be and you're wondering how you can help other people suppose the best piece of advice is to just be there and be happy to listen you don't have to do anything i did a a mental health first aid course a few years ago um with a uh, um, MHFA, uh, and it was it was it was really good. But one of the things that I remember learning was it's not down to you to solve the problem. It's not up to you to to come up with an answer. And um, or you, I, I think the woman was saying when you're sitting there and listening if someone's opening up to you or telling you about their problems they're not asking for advice they're asking for you to tell them what to do or how to fix it it's not your responsibility to do that they're just wanting you to sit and listen and acknowledge it and 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 give them a safe space to open up and, and be honest and i think that's the most important thing that that everybody can learn to do is to provide those environments to friends and colleagues you know partners family whatever it might be that if they're in a position where they want to open up about something just to be just to to, to be a safe space for that yeah Yeah, it's a bit like
3: if you were walking down the street or you were home with your partner and they had physical issues and you needed to ring an ambulance or you needed to perform cpr you're just that bridge to getting them where they need to be yeah help whether that is just referring them um to somebody else, or is there anything you can do in the immediate to to sort of um, calm that situation down and then build bridges yeah. forward? So I think treat it the same as you would if you saw somebody maybe having a, a physical ailment come to life. Deal with it with the respective needs. Don't just push it to one side and go, I'm just running out now, so can we talk about it later? Tackle it straight there and then. It's always the best thing to do.
0: Yeah, and just providing a safe space for people to feel as though yeah. if they want to share you'll listen and it doesn't necessarily have to be there and then It doesn't necessarily have to be, it doesn't even necessarily ever have to happen. But it, when that if that person knows that the safe space is there, if it's needed, then that might be all it takes. That might just, they know that if they want to talk about it, it's there and that might lift a bit of pressure for them. Uh, I think I'm going to wrap us up there, lads, unless you've got anything else to add.
2: Um, I was just going to mention that, you know, obviously we asked uh, Vish about the the racism with uh in cricket as well um which i th- think is a, a a very very important point and uh, i'm i would like people to go and have a little look into that into that case as well it, it, it's it's one that's you know probably swept under the carpet because you know other sports are bigger and have you know seemingly bigger issues but it seems to be a, a, a well, it's an issue that's in every sport at the moment. I think there's been a few things in the F1 as well recently, which haven't been great. Uh, You know, Justin Thomas in the golf uh, recently just had, you know, uh, a big sponsorship deal taken away from him for an ill-advised comment whilst playing. It's, um, you know, one of these things that we kind of need to learn from, and and I think Vish is his article as well. I'll try and try and put it up on the Twitter. It, it's absolutely perfect, in, in in covering it, and I think when you actually see the the reaction from a a certain league chairman uh, that we talk about, it's you know it's not been to the a disgrace really so it's quite um, scary isn't it that yeah the
0: the way those it was like that's like when we we've discussed on a previous episode but it was like the comments from greg Greg clark and you kind of think how is anybody at grassroots level ever made mental effect change when the people who are in charge hold either hold these views or at least don't understand why those words that they're using are wrong and you just think how is anything going to change if you lot are in charge like how how is that possible
2: Absolutely. And you know, if anyone wants to get in touch with us about that, has got any stories that they, they might have encountered as well, just just give us an email or slide into the to the DMs. We'll be we'll be happy to have a little conversation with you, which is which is what we're all
0: about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, chaps. Thank you very much for, for your time today, fellas. You're um you both looking splendid on the camera, I must say. It's just, it's just lovely to see at this time in the morning looking superb. I feel a bit disheveled, but just seeing you're two uh your two lovely faces has, has, has brightened me up this, uh, this fine Sunday morning. And, uh, and thanks to you, to the listeners, for for joining us once again. We're going to leave you now with, with Vish's quick fire. So we'll be back on Friday with our next Not For Me Clive episode. And then the following Monday, we'll be speaking to uh, former Premier League referee Bobby Madley. So that's something to to look forward to. So we're going to leave you now with Vish's quick fire. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Man market. on, Vich. How many miles has the Honda Jazz covered since football restarted?
1: <laughs> um God, it's done a lot actually, poor girl. Uh, she um well, I was driving back and forth to Manchester for the um for the match for the cricket matches up there. And then kind of driving through London is, is pretty treacherous anyway. So yeah, she's she's putting a fair she did the um King Power Stadium on um on Saturday as well. So four hour round trip. Um no, she's holding up. I had her mot in between as well, so no, it's um, she's it's <laughs> still life in her, yeah.
2: So, Vish, my uh, my kid is just coming up to his third birthday. Uh, we recently moved him into a, a, a big boy bed, um, which he loves, uh, but we we had to put like a little crash mat, uh, just next to it. <laughs> um, so last week, um, whilst I was meant to be watching the baby monitor, he somehow managed to fall out of his bed, but was just asleep just still there uh, until he was scooped up by his mother and put back in bed. Um, my question is, when was the last time you fell out of bed?
1: When was the last time I fell out of bed? Um, you know what? Uh, last summer, uh, when I was covering the Cricket World Cup, I fell out of bed. I may have been quite inebriated at the time as well because in fact i know i was because i ended up thinking i was walking to the bathroom and actually walking out the door of my hotel room and i came to when i kind of got in the hallway because the door closed behind me and woke me up basically i'm not a sleepwalker (laughs) i did um so i was just out in the in the hallway in my boxes and i had to go down thank god um it was it was I think it was like seven in the morning so there weren't too many people up and about so I got down to the to the lobby and I kind of put my head around the lift and, I, and said like look I'm really sorry I've, I've accidentally just walked out of my room here Um, and they were good as gold and let me you know laughed about it and let me back in but <laughs> that was generally the last time I fell out of bed
0: If there was a Royal Rumble between all of the Football Ramble presenters who would win?
1: Jules Jules is fierce yeah um oh.
0: She's got that low centre of gravity as well.
1: Yeah, also, but she's got she's got rage, you know. She's got, um, <laughs> you know, not that I've seen her, but you know, you can tell someone when someone can handle themselves. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, she's um, like, I, I, you know, love her to a bit. She's she's such a joy to work with, but you can tell that like, you don't want to get on the wrong side of her.
0: If you had to share a toothbrush with another member of the Ramble, who would you choose?
1: Fucking hell, um. <laughs> Sorry, I I shouldn't have sworn there. Um, (laughs) um, I'm trying to think who's got the best chompers now. Uh, I'll I'll probably have to say, I think Marcus has got the best teeth. I'll probably say Marcus. I wouldn't go anywhere near Pete.
0: (laughs) 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 He he strikes me as the type of guy, Pete, that would probably be one of those people who doesn't own a toothbrush but still has good teeth. Do you know what I mean? You're like one of those people. Yeah, he's
1: very very well turned out, is Pete. He's definitely the best dresser of the Ramble. Um, But, yeah, I feel like he he will use something else to clean his teeth. (laughs) You know, in Demolition Man with the the three seashells.
0: Um, He'd use an iPad or something, wouldn't he? Yeah, would you, yeah, He'd yeah. use an iPad, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> uh Vish, your happiest football moment.
1: Uh yeah, uh 99 Champions League final when um yeah, when I was going nuts for Sheringham's equalizer, we got the corner, I kinda of hadn't composed myself and when Solskjaer saw, scored because they were so close together, and because I was celebrating so much, it felt like one elongated celebration. You know, I, I hadn't come down from the previous one, from when, you know, by the time Solskjaer pokes the ball in the goal. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, undoubtedly that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then uh, on the on the contrary would be what what was your saddest football moment?
1: You know what? It was it's a bit of recency bias here, um, because I I was really upset. Um, after the Germany penalty shootout in Euro '96, but I didn't actually watch the game live; listen to it on the radio. But when when England lost that semi final to Croatia, well, played we played absolute trash after <laughs> after a goal, um, and you know they were the, you knew they were coming back into it, but when. um yeah, when we lost that, I was a bit like, God, that like was, because it was so fun. Last, you know, 2018 was so much fun. Like, yeah. that proper, that was, I, I think that might have even surpassed Euro 96, really, because we kind of, I, I know in Euro 96, there was also an element of, or, you know, how England going to ruin this? But kind of the whole, just, it felt like the whole country was, was behind that England team. And it was so much fun and it was a credit to everyone involved from the players to the backroom staff as to how, how it was sold over here. But yeah, just for it to end like that. And, and we always knew it was it was going to end. well um, I suppose, you know, we had the Columbia penalty shooter, but that felt like, that really did feel like the end of the party.
3: Yeah.
1: Like, at the end of a party where all your best mates there and all your favourite anecdotes have, have happened in that moment. And then for it to, to go like that was, yeah, was quite sad because it felt like it it felt like the worst of everything, didn't it? It felt like have, you got to go back to school, you got back go back to work now, you got go back to your lives. You know, this is all over now. Um, uh, I, I think Southgate actually told that to the players. Southgate to the players to one side and said, "Make sure you remember everything that we've done here, and make sure you remember everyone around you because, you know, because of various football reasons like injuries and." development and like where your careers are going to go from here and your ages you will never do this again with this same group of players um and it kind of felt like that for us as a country as well actually
0: one thing one thing i always wondered is kate mason seems very giggly when she's on the show um but she also obviously does sky sports how does she manage to keep a straight face on sky sports because she can never do it when she's she's in the studio with you guys That's such a good point. I've not
1: really thought of that before. No, that is that is bang on. Maybe the ramble's her release. Maybe ramble. I I think she's as well. She's kind of, she's more casual on the ramble because she kind of has to be, um, compared to Sky Sports. So yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) If you
2: had to be handcuffed to one of them for an entire day, who would you pick? Kevin Keegan, Sven and Eriksson, or Steve Bruce?
1: So I wouldn't say Keegan because you will end up falling down the well with him, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say Sven because I don't want to see what he get, gets up to. I don't mind hearing the stories, but I wouldn't want to see it. I wouldn't want to be there. Um, yeah, I'd probably say Stevie Bruce because he seems like a re- he seems really lovely, and he's a yeah, he goes yeah. He? So um, yeah, I reckon Stevie loves his bacon, and I love bacon, so. Someone else as well, um, yeah, yeah, I'd be, uh, yeah, yeah. Steve Bruce,
0: he feels to me the type of guy, Steve Bruce, who'd be like, every time it was every time you were going to the bar, he'd be like, no, no, sit down, I'll get it, don't worry.
1: Yes, yeah, you, you can hear his voice saying that, can't you? No, let, no, no, let me get these, let me get
0: these. Don't, don't worry, don't worry, I've had a good week, don't worry, <laughs> yeah,
1: spot on he'd say that, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: How's the bacon then Steve? Say? How's the bacon did you Steve. say? How's the bacon did you say? How's the bacon did you say? Yeah.